Sarah, thanks very much for joining me uh, on the podcast today. We're in unfamiliar circumstances, I think is probably fair to say. We're here to talk about technology, but actually we're looking at virtual reality, we're looking at other technologies as well. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about where technology is possibly going to replace uh, conferencing, not just for now, but for maybe longer periods of time as well. Sarah, do you want to just start with giving us a bit of background uh, to yourself and the stuff that you're involved in? That would be great. Yeah, sure. So, um, hi, my name is Sarah Tico, and uh, I sort of accidentally, I guess, fell into the world of, of VR in healthcare. Um, I had a bit of a background in, I studied anthropology and more sort of uh, physiological anthropology and evolution and things and then fell into contemporary art and then a few years ago became quite unwell so I had what's now sort of described as a a one-time psychotic episode and it was sort of navigating through the healthcare system that I felt really frustrated around how we communicate what mental health is like and having that really limited amount of time to, to, to speak to someone but also how do you put into words what happens when your brain goes to, to literally another planet and so I initially became interested in VR as a storytelling tool and how you can use it to sort of you know visualize lived experience or explain the sort of different realities that that we live in and then discovered all the different ways that it could be applied so cut to a lot of soul searching and God, moving to various countries around the world and getting into VR, mental health, art curation. Um, I ended up starting my own company, um, which is called Hatsumi, which means to see something for the first time. And we've been adapting uh, an arts and health research method called body mapping that looks at how people can visually communicate lived experience of pain and mental health conditions. Um, and I also work on uh, another startup called Deep, which is a breath controlled VR experience that was developed with artists and scientists um, to help alleviate anxiety. And we're also looking into how it can be applied in different respiratory issues. And then alongside that as well, work uh, as the healthcare lead with Immerse UK, who are across sector network uniting people working in immersive technology and healthcare so uh yeah. yeah a mixture of things so you're busy you're doing some amazing stuff and I think there's lots of things to start picking up on from that but the thing that just struck me was how many people I speak to who who get into VR from a various backgrounds so my background is humanities is not technical at all actually it's, it's humanities understanding behavior and social interaction but actually how open this industry is or certainly can be for these influences to come in and how personal stories are driving change and and the experiences and that's so how strong has that been for you having that personal experience and wanting to make change um i think yeah you've got to you've got to be motivated to, from you know to be to to take the risk to do anything new right and i guess like no one starts a diabetes charity because they're just you know fascinated by diabetes <laughs> right um and i think you know you see problems through your own experiences and therefore you see ways to to uh you know hopefully overcome that but yeah it's just such an interesting area because it's so interdisciplinary and it's got the science behind it and you know obviously all of the healthcare applications but also it's creative it's it's a teaching tool it's a really interesting way of being able to conduct experiments and you know obtain metrics and information that you couldn't couldn't before and i think you know that's what makes it so fascinating exciting the fact that you know you have games developers speaking to mm. neuroscientists and whilst we're all coming from very different worlds we are all 
learning to to speak the same language but um yeah. but yeah definitely lots of other founders and you know artists and people working in this space have you know stories of just going through something and being like well i can totally see how this could be yeah. applied so um yeah Nice. And do you think that's that's something that can continue? Because obviously, I, th I think part of that has been the early days of VR, at least in this reiteration of it, because obviously we know VR isn't brand new. It's been here before and it's come and gone and such. But if we talk about VR as in 2013 onwards, um, is it partly because this is a fledgling area where people are working stuff out together? And that is that is something really beautiful about that, about that connectivity that exists there. How do we carry on those relationships and that openness of of the community behind it, I suppose? Um, I think that there is a lot of openness, but I think people are still very open with the people in their own silos. Like you have all yeah. of the film festivals that now have their, their virtual reality elements within it. And then you have, you know, the International VR Healthcare Association and, and virtual medicine and all these big events. And, and whilst there is a bit of conversation about how well, mm. how could we involve storytelling and game design into our healthcare interventions? Or, you know, you have uh, different arts-based festivals and conferences that are like, oh, maybe there's, you know, VR for good. Like, are they really talking to each other? Um, and mm. what I'd like to see more of is, you know, it becoming even more interdisciplinary and, you know, having conversations with people that are from those, you know, very different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, last year I did a research project with Nesta, which was, I think I spoke to you, in fact, during that research mm. potentially as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was like investigating the role of the arts and creative practice in virtual reality for mental health. And again, sort of looking at that really wide spectrum of people operating in this space and why is it that all the sort of clinically validated interventions on one end look a little bit naff? Uh, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and it's because when you get, you know, funding from NIHR or whatever, like they're not they're not trying to get you to, you know, make things look pretty because they don't think that that's necessarily mm. the, the main part of it. But actually, the I think, you know, being able to think, create story and make things compelling and get people to want to continually engage in in their recovery and healthcare is really important and so i think it's just looking at ways to make that collaboration easier as well as getting yeah. people in the same space and and having those conversations so let, so let me ask you a question that is something that's probably dear to both of our hearts in the sense that you're, you you have a you know strong artistic background um and my background is filmmaking and here i am working having worked in the nhs for eight years and realizing there's an awful lot of value to the creative process that probably doesn't get seen because you're not a clinician, you're not doing quantitative-based research. You know, it, it's a different style, it's a different approach, but there's great value there. Can you tell us perhaps a little bit about your experiences of bringing your background to the fray in terms of, of healthcare and mental health? And also what, what you believe is the benefit of having that background and bringing it bringing it in, I suppose, and working with other groups? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think, first of all, just a, a lot of the work that I've been doing has been around events in this space because it's just creating an environment where you have people coming together. And I think, you know, just making things fun and interesting and not having another really dry conference where everyone's just sitting at the back 
looking at their nodding. phone. Yeah, and, and nodding. <laughs> I think, you know, that that is really important. But, yeah, having, having artists that really feed into the design uh, and development and making sure that you get people sort of, you know, mentally into into the space and really engaging with the experience that you're trying to create because you don't just put a headset on someone and say, mm-hmm. you know, do, do this and, and you'll feel better. It's about how you sort of prime someone and what is the sort of onboarding? How do you explain how something works really well and, and create a bit of a story about it and let people kind of feel that, that awe and wonder that makes them really feel like they're in that experience. Mm. Um, as well, I think I think I think it's it's a really good, great point, and I remember speaking to to Rosie a few weeks ago, and and, and it actually um, Sarah Jones as well, and they both mentioned like yourself, the if we're talking about VR, it isn't just that what you're experiencing in the headset. There's this process beforehand, this preparedness to it, I suppose, but then equally there is this element of debriefing, decompressing, discussion, and actually that's often where a lot of the value occurs is that, again, that interaction. And there's a lot of people that would say, well, VR, it removes the human connectivity. Well, actually, if you look at it like that, it enhances it, doesn't it? Yeah, like, I think my favourite pastime is just having my Oculus Quest in my bag and being like, do you want to try VR? And then just putting someone in something, you know, marvellous, like tilt brush or whatever. And you can yeah. just see, you know, people's whole body responding with joy and just, you know, slight terror as well when they realise there's just space <laughs> underneath their feet and they just don't know where they are anymore. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I think, like, you know, all the work that Rosie's done has just been phenomenal in demonstrating how important that conversation is and all their work with Grenfell that they actually managed to really increase the number of referrals into the IAP service is just phenomenal. And, and it's the same with arts as well. I mean, I grew up thinking that the arts was for this sort of cultural elite and it was just something that I never really understood. And I'd go into galleries and read the um you know the the plaque on the wall and just walk away feeling almost more confused and uh and it was only once i started volunteering in this uh, art gallery in brighton which is how i ended up um kind of going down the pathway of work work, working in the arts was just standing there as an invigilator and just realizing that i was just having conversations with people about what this installation meant um amazing place called fabrica which are um, it's an arts organisation which is housed inside this former Regency church. So they commission all these huge site-specific installations. And so I think that was almost my introduction into immersive, was just kind of standing underneath these towering installations and then having these conversations with people. And like every time, it, that was always the best bit, or all of the workshops and talks and all the activities that happened around it. That, and you realise that, that that's actually what the art does and I think that's what VR does a lot of the time as well. I think you're absolutely right and it's interesting you mentioned about the art installation that surrounds you and actually immersive use as a a terminology I suppose isn't unique to the technological interface is it because my entry to immersive was actually a project I was working on eight years ago where I was looking at the Roman Empire and actually a lot of the rich families had escape rooms or rooms they'd go when they were feeling anxious and such like that which would be painted from ceiling you know um, floor to ceiling right around and it would depict you know an olive grove whatever else it would be and that's about as immersive still as it gets in many ways you know and so it's really interesting there's a lot of historical context we bring with us for the world of immersive isn't it I think that's 
that's really, really quite cool. Yeah, um, and everything's a bloody immersive experience these days, <laughs> isn't it? Like, I, it literally, it like, I, I sometimes hate working in this because everyone's like, oh, Sarah, an immersive experience. I'm like, what the hell does that even mean any, anymore? And, uh, and yeah, I just, I think there's a lot of quite, yeah, naff things that, that come with that. But, yeah, I think immersive theatre and how that's really influenced lots of things that happen now. And, you know, I think the idea of it is changing. But, yeah, I remember volunteering on one of the first immersive theatre performances years ago called Yumi Bum Bum Train, um, which is just okay. a, a brilliant, brilliant name and brilliant... Um, Production and so the idea was that you had to go through this almost like I think they had like five different stories and you'd have to go room to room by yourself. So, for example, one of them then, so you're in a room with a huge MRI machine. Sorry, words have left me today. And uh, they're like, listen, we're really worried. We're like, we're sure it's fine, but we're just going to do the scan. So if you could just lie down on this gurney. And so you lie down on this, uh, what turns out to be an electronic gurney. And so you go into this MRI machine. You come out the other side and you're in a sushi restaurant. And you're a wow. piece of sushi whilst everyone is eating around you. Uh, then you come out the other side under a car in a garage and suddenly you're a mechanic and there's a couple there that's asking you, you know, what's wrong with the car. And so you have to kind of act along um, with everything. And it's like, you know, rooms and rooms where, you know, you're in a church and you're, you're blessed by God and suddenly you can walk again or you're in a room with like a, a, a your dying grandmother saying her last words to you. And, uh, and again, it was just this... This idea that your reality could warp so so quickly and actually change who you thought that you were, even in a real life example, but that after a while you, you lose that your your suspension of disbelief. Um, and I think that, that VR is just another way of, of delivering that. I think you're absolutely right. So would would you say um VR obviously can promote some fantastic messaging. It can help us feel good, it can help us escape pressures and anxieties and such like that but do you think it also has the ability when not utilized correctly or maybe in some cases it does if you're creating a, a horror experience or something like that to actually be quite dangerous for us do you think oh god absolutely and i think that this is a really odd space in that it is a, a digital therapeutic right there are people that are you know making medical claims saying this can help you with xyz but it's completely unregulated there's no sort of ce marking i think lots of um yeah people in the mrha and things just don't quite understand how it how it's being used yet and i think you know we, we desperately need more policy around this but also need to acknowledge that it's not just another software as a medical device this is something that's born from the gaming industry and the entertainment industry and and it's got really interesting links with that but i think we need to come up with a whole new strategy in how we protect people and make sure that they're not being influenced because it is a hugely influential tool um, and the amount of money that's been poured into using vr for marketing just really you know demonstrates that but also how do we not overregulate? so much that it's impossible for people that are making genuinely good things to you know get it out there and find some sort of sustainable way of, of running this as well and do you think um so something rosie mentioned which i thought was really interesting and i kind of agreed with her with was um actually it's often the, the more simple experiences that are the most impactful in the sense that it could be uh, you know something very scenic you could show to somebody at a particular time 
on their journey, whether it's a healthcare-related matter in, in a hospital or something like that, or it could be just enough to return somebody to a place which is precious to them in their timeline. I don't want to call it entry-level stuff, but there's value to the kind of the more simple, the, the more approachable kind of content as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what what you're trying to give to someone, right? Because there's so many different ways that VR can be, you know, used just in, in general. But even with healthcare, it's it's training experiences, it's mental health interventions, it's pain management. I mean, things like pain management, right? It's just being able to fully engage in, in an experience and, and, you know, feel like you're really interacting with it that, that sort of num- numbs the pain. And so, yeah, you can definitely keep things simple there. But then you obviously have things like uh, game change and the work that Oxford VR have been doing around exposure therapy, and that is incredibly complex. And I think even the, the way that they've designed all of the, the research is so beautifully done and, and how they worked with people with lived experience to design it and all of the testing. And obviously that has to be far more complex but I think yeah we're, we're totally at the beginning of this and and I, I definitely agree that the most simple things are the most beautiful and you can see by what gets used the most and and how passionate people think you know people are about it things like Beat Saber right you're just slicing through yeah, boxes right. in time to really naff music but like we all love my, it my wife loves it and you know and she was like don't bring headset in the lounge and what happens she's the one that keeps the headset in the lounge and it's so it has this wonderful appeal in many ways, doesn't it? So it's really cool. You know, you said about uh, you run a lot of events, um, you do a lot of engagement, um, but we're in a time right now where that's not going to be possible. We've got um, COVID-19. There's a lot of anxiety out there in the social um, sphere at the moment. How can technology, specifically VR, be utilised, do you think, for keeping people connected, keeping conversations rolling, and maybe stepping in in some ways where conferences are going to struggle right now, do you think? I mean, people have really jumped on board, you know, just even simple video conferencing already. I mean, we're on Zoom at the moment, and um, I think there's loads of... I just had a... I was meant to meet someone for lunch today, so we've just been, like, sitting on Google Hangouts and, and eating our lunch together, um, which was really sweet. But um, yeah. but there's loads of, of VR conferences happening, and there's been loads that have been happening for a long time as well. Um, so there's a really great guy, a doctor called uh, Chuck Webster, that runs something called Health Systems Chat in Alt Space, and so he usually times these uh, sort of VR conference get-togethers in time for other health conferences that happen and he's fantastic so what he does is he usually collates um, the various papers that are presented at the conference and he makes these beautiful virtual worlds and spatializes all of that information so he gives you this grand tour of what's been going on and then you know it's pretty informal you can have these open discussions and I'd been to a few already um, and uh, a, a group of us were actually going to go to virtual medicine, which is a big VR healthcare conference that happens in yeah, the US. Hand up, me as well. That's unfortunate. Oh, it was going to be so fun. I bought a suitcase with a scooter embedded into it, and I was what? so excited. Yeah, a suitcase. I was like, I'm never going to be late ever again. That's amazing. Ridiculous purchase ever. I saw someone in the tube with one the other day and like hounded him down and was like, just tell me everything about this. So it's like, <laughs> 
sorry, this is a total tangent, but everyone needs to know about the scoot case. Um, but yeah, it's like a, um, it, it fits into the, you know, the dimensions of your hand luggage, but it's just wow. got a little scoot in it. It's amazing. I've, I've not even seen this, and I'm already thinking I need to order four for each one of my children. Oh my God, they're <laughs> bloody genius. Because yeah, I think they have them for kids as well anyway, but this one's like very, very professional, all in black. So I need, now yep. I need to cover it in something really obnoxious. Um, but anyway, but yeah, obviously, like, yeah, so virtual medicine was, was cancelled and, and the world will never see my ski case um, unless it's in VR. Uh, but uh, but we, we messaged the organisers and we were like, you know, do you think it's possible to somehow move this in, into VR? And, you know, they had various tracks and like 65 different speakers. And clearly that wasn't going to be feasible. Um, but a group of us, so Rosie Collins, uh, Ross O'Brien, from uh, CN Central Northwest London NHS Trust. Um, such a mouthful. Um, he's fantastic, by the way. So he, him, Rosie, and then Keith Grimes from VR Doctors, a few of us were like, well, what can we do? Because we spent months preparing to, to, to go to uh, virtual medicine. And so we've been speaking to Chuck Webster, and next week we're going to run... Um, yeah, a little VR conference within that and just been gathering interest from people that want to share about some of the stuff they're doing and it goes from anything from patients that are in palliative care to startups and doctors and researchers and so we're just going to do something super duper casual, really, you know, low level in many ways and just say here's 15 minutes to have a chat, run that for a couple of hours and then have space for conversation afterwards. But um, but I think there's so much potential. I mean, I've uh, been speaking to a lot of art therapists because a lot of the stuff that I do is very much in the vein of art therapy, but seeing if we could go into things like uh, Mozilla Hubs, which have some very basic 3D drawing capability and actually, again, use that, that interactive you know, ability to do things that you couldn't do in real life and get all of us drawing in 3D together in virtual space. So I think there's loads of potential. And also just, you know, to save the planet a bit and stop doing all this unnecessary travel. Like, we're all going to take, what, a week out of our time to stand on stage for 20 minutes and talk about stuff that we could have done from our homes. Yeah, I think Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And um, it always feels better to be making stuff as well than just talking about it i think there's a tendency particularly in this immersive technology sphere where actually you can go and talk at every conference and that's your year done you know and actually it's about the value of what the conference you know which conference to go to and getting that balance between i'm going to make something worthwhile and perhaps talk about it as opposed to just talk about what's out there and not build value if that makes sense so maybe this would be an opportunity for us to 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 kind of stand back a bit and just look at what it is we need to do and you know have a bit of breathing space in that respect I don't know but um, absolutely because I think that lots of us have gone through that wave of you know when you first get into it at the beginning you're like I want to learn everything and beat everyone and this is how we do it and then realize that we don't have loads of time and it costs money and time that, that we don't all have and actually the main thing that we really want is funding and finding the right collaborators and having a bit of like a balance because I think you know what some of us do sometimes enjoy with conferences is you know you you do meet really great people and you have those lovely moments where you know you're not just sitting alone in an office drive going a bit mad but um but I think yeah a lot of time is often wasted on networking and I think that there's if you're going to do an event then do it like why is that happening and what can we do that's really purposeful and 
I think, you know, what we try and do with uh, the events that I've been running over the last few years is try and make sure that you have something like demos available because even though this is meant to be digital technology that's distributed online, then actually most of the builds and things that people are creating are locked away in you know, some executable file on their hard drive and they only come out at, at certain moments. And so I think that's often quite a big pull. Yeah, and I think we were talking before the recording as well about making the events socially comfortable for people as well, you know. So if we're talking about people coming from multiple backgrounds, we've got to be able to cater for all of this because everybody has a different story to tell, different experiences which are all valued in this space. So it's about creating useful events, isn't it? And I think that's what you've been doing over the past year or two is going around and having these useful events around the country. What's the engagement been like with those labs um yeah it's been really fun it, it has been really interesting and and i i have enjoyed them a lot because they have attracted quite a variety of people and lots of academics and you know people, startups and, and all sorts um and i think we found we found a system which really works which is just keep it really simple don't really have any of the talks going on for too long but again it's 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 all the drinks and chats and and trying all the demos beforehand but i mean there is part of me that sometimes still feels like that isn't enough um and uh and because there's there's huge there's so many people that get left out so i work in the fuse box which is um like a vr co-working space down in brighton and i think i'm one of the very few women here that isn't actually a mother um which i think is quite an interesting observation anyway because you know women in tech i don't know it's almost often quite limited but um but they can't go to networking events and all of us are, are scrambling for funding all the time. And so I think what we need sometimes is, is people to be, you know, sometimes paid to go to things uh, and also acknowledge that, that people have childcare issues as well. And, and, uh, and especially being able to attend hackathons, I think those are some of the most like, valuable events that I've ever been to and would have never worked in VR if I hadn't gone to this hackathon in Sydney and met a bunch of people that taught me basic unity skills and then gave me this like really naff award at the end and said oh you tried and that was good and I was like I did try and like someone's acknowledged that <laughs> um, yeah. and so I've actually been speaking to uh, some autism charities actually around looking at doing like relaxed hackathons that would basically pay for people's time to, to go away for say a weekend uh, and you'd either be able to you know either bring your kids, maybe have a crash, haven't totally worked that bit out yet, or pay for childcare and have an opportunity for people to actually spend a bit of time together, bringing people from all those different backgrounds, be it research or healthcare, blah, 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 and uh, and not really have any pressure just to make something, but actually just find ways of, you know, finding, finding the things that really unite everyone's interests, learning to speak the same language, because I think those relationships are really important, but to just put everyone in this sort of white room and just serve up cheap booze for an hour is just, it's just not a w- nice way to do it. And that's not how most people enjoy that. Like, it, it doesn't really serve, yeah, parents or neurodiverse people. And it's just a bit, and it can be really overwhelming. And I hate that moment, you know, when you, I sometimes would just be like, oh, I just want to like go outside for a little bit, but I don't really smoke, so I haven't got that excuse, so I'll just kind of like wander excuse around to go and out, stare yeah. at the building and then come back. But generally <laughs> just like more inclusive spaces that people actually want to be at and give that time for 
people to come together. Yeah. There's one thing I haven't asked you yet, and it's, it's, it's really rubbish of me, but can you tell us more about the experiences you've been creating? <laughs> because, you know, that, that's, 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 you know, we talked about this before. I think we spoke last year about it. And to me, it was like, wow, this sounds absolutely incredible. It sounds really magic. But to, the, to people that um, obviously don't know about it, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been creating and what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So, um so I first started really seriously working in VR when I joined something called the Big Anxiety Festival, which was um, an arts and mental health festival that was run by the University of New South Wales um, in Sydney uh, in collaboration with the Black Dog Institute, which are a mental health and mood disorders clinic. And I was looking into doing a PhD with them around how you could potentially visualize the experience of psychosis in VR and how you could use that almost as a tool to educate people about what that is really like, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and stigma. And uh, and so when I was there and sort of researching what I wanted to do as for, for that, for my PhD, then I met this incredible uh, researcher called um, Professor Catherine Boydell, who has been doing some really amazing work pioneering this arts and health research method called body mapping. Um, and so body mappings exist since the early 80s, and it was developed in, in South Africa when there was a lot of research going on with women living of HIV. And they felt it's really difficult to talk about things like HIV when there's so much stigma around it. And so what they did is they developed this, this really fascinating research method where you'd um, traditionally trace around your body on this big piece of paper so you have your outline outline of your body and you go through this mindfulness experience which is just getting you to start thinking about how your emotions or or health conditions physically you know embody themselves you know with things like for example anxiety then you get that sort of turning in your stomach or or red cheeks or you know shaky hands and you start to think, well, what, what does that actually look like? Like, where is it? And what color is it? Or what sort of texture is it? And then you start to build up this, this artwork, this life-size artwork as a way of being able to understand that experience, but also be able to communicate it visually. Because I don't think, like, there are words don't... That words aren't really enough, I feel like, sometimes for a lot of the experiences that we have. And obviously we have incredible poets and writers but I think a lot of us sit there and go I don't I don't quite know what to say um, and so I became really fascinated with how you could potentially translate that into a virtual reality experience having you know been obviously very interested in virtual reality and and whilst I'd, I'd worked in the arts in various capacities for a long time I'd be more of a producer I was still doing you know all of the spreadsheets and arranging and things and I was like I'm not an artist and I remember trying to illustrate what my experience of psychosis was. And I was like, this looks like shit. <laughs> I was like, it was far more intense than, than these, like, you know, faint pencil lines. And you go into things like tilt brush and, and you know, all these other 3D drawing experiences. And you're painting through space, painting through space, floating through space, like painting with fire and electricity. And, you're, and it's so, like, awe-inspiring and powerful. And it's just like... Yeah, like that's what it feels like when you're really angry or, you know, when you feel these emotions. And I loved how you can, could animate all those drawing tools. So essentially after, yeah, the PhD didn't work out and I moved to Australia, uh, America for a bit and did some research out there. And then I was like, 
fuck it, I'm just going to do this as a business. So I pitched it as an idea at a hackathon um, at Google in San Francisco, and it was a sort of mental health, um, like, yeah, well-being uh, hackathon. And people called, <laughs> won an award for most financially viable idea, which <laughs> like is laughable now, really, because I, I feel like VR and mental health isn't particularly financially viable yet. Um, but I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to start this as a business. So I've been working to translate this method into VR so that you have this 3D avatar that you can illustrate on. I've been working with people with uh, lived experience of chronic pain specifically is, is an area that I'm really interested in focusing on at the moment and looking at, first of all, how you can use this VR body mapping tool to, to communicate experience, but also, again, how you can start to understand your own conditions in a different way, but also how can we, what can we learn from this? What happens when you have a thousand people illustrating chronic pain and then combine that with more quantitative research methods? So, you know, being able to, you know, give them standardized pain surveys or uh, like generalized anxiety and depression surveys and then, and then start noticing the trends like, oh, well, men from, Northern England seem to paint more with red in, in this part of their body or, or do you know what I mean, start to run all these different analyses and, and compare, compare this more quantitative and qualitative subjective data. So, um, so yeah, so that's sort of what we're trying to do. Everything has been bootstrapped so far and, and been working with some amazing collaborators which have actually done everything voluntarily. Um, at the moment, but, uh, but yeah, we're fundraising to try and lift it off and uh, starting to work with a few different hospitals to see how it can yeah. uh, improve communication um, between therapists and, and patients. So it's something that they could potentially do in, in the waiting room yeah. and then take that drawing in and go, hey, this is what this wow. feels like. I think it, that sounds really powerful and extremely inspiring. And um, there's going to be people listening to this that want to, know, want to know more about that. So where can they go? Can they find you on Twitter, obviously? Um, yes, so you can find me on Twitter. It's just at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, uh, Tico, T-I-C-H-O. Um, or my website is called HatsumiVR.com. Last question for you, and I have to ask this because it feels like um, it feels like a good question to finish a podcast with. And I think it's fair to say there are still people, a, a vast majority of people that haven't experienced VR yet or experienced it the right way yet or are interested still at finding out more about it and getting involved what would be your encouragement to people that feel like they want to be involved with virtual reality but perhaps don't have that technical background or don't know where to start and you've just shared your journey your wonderfully inspiring journey what would you say to others that might want to bring that to the fore as um, well i think events can be really helpful for that actually i think being able to just meet people and mm. ask questions um, but also just find somewhere where you can grab a headset and just have a little play. I think one of the greatest gifts I was ever given was was visiting someone at their at their studios and they were like, oh, there's a vibe over there. Like, it's not being used for the rest of the afternoon. Go nuts. And I just learned so much in, in that time of just playing around and, and being confused or, or going to festivals as well, things like alternate realities at Sheffield Dog Fest. I think it's an amazing example of, you know, beautiful storytelling yeah. and, and people that have really thought about how it's presented as well, because it can be a bit confusing when you're working at all. Um, by yourself. But I mean, also just email yeah. people. If there's someone that's doing something really interesting, just tweet them. I think everyone's always really 
flattered to be asked and I think there's this very English thing that we're like oh I don't want to be a nuisance but be People love talking about themselves. I mean, I just got to sit here and talk about myself for an hour. Like, how great is this? And then, and then call it work. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Just, just message people and be like, oh, I think the thing that you're doing is cool. Can I pop by sometime? And, like, nine times out of ten, I feel like people say yes, right? Yeah, for sure, they do. And we're, we're a welcoming bunch, really. But just to say thank you very much for, for joining me on this episode. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and hearing about your experiences. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And yeah, I'm very flattered to be invited to be a part of it. Oh, so thanks. To be continued. <laughs>